0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep, or ox, or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, they would come up like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to Yahweh. When the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh on account of the Midianites, Yahweh sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt but now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And Yahweh said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an epha of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him, under the terebinth, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of Yahweh reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock, and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of Yahweh vanished from his sight." Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. But Yahweh said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and called it Yahweh is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiyah's That night Yahweh said to him, "'Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old "'and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has "'and cut down the Asherah that is beside it "'and build an altar to Yahweh your God "'on the top of the stronghold here "'with stones laid in due order. "'Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering "'with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down.' "'So Gideon took ten men of his servants.' And did as Yahweh had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 703 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. And it is a holiday weekend, after all, here in the U.S. So I am excited about not having to work my nine-to-five. I'll be working whatever hours on other things, not for many, because you know what? Sometimes it's just as well to work not for money. Actually, sometimes it's more pleasant to not work for money, to just do the things that seem to be most beneficial in a direct way in your own home, in your own circle. And typically people are not going to pay you money to do those things. Like say, for instance, nobody's paying me to read Judges chapter six. And so also the Rooster, you hear crowing. Nobody's paying that rooster. In fact, I would pay that rooster to not crow while I'm trying to podcast. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Judges chapter six is what we just read. And we have Midian oppressing Israel for seven years. And consider with me, just picture it if you can. If you have the kind of an imagination like I do, where you can close your eyes and you picture and you Imagine you can see these places and these things if you have that kind of an imagination. Just picture people leaving their normal habitations, their normal settlements that they had built up, let's say beside creeks and beside rivers or in the middle of a plain, or at an oasis. They built their homes and their storehouses, their barns their silos. They built all of these things. They're holding pens for animals on the open ground, out on the plain or what have you, or on the top of a hill. They built their homes and their farms where it would be easy to see where they are for people who are looking for them, who are friendly, maybe family and friends to be able to see that's where they're at. Let's go there. We're looking for so-and-so. Ah, there's his house. People transitioning from that and not just one or two people, but a lot of people saying we should probably be harder to find. We should make our homes where we live with our families and with our servants and with our livestock, we should make our homes harder to find, more protected, more secret. We should hide our food and hide ourselves. And so they did. It says that they did this. It's right there in verse 2. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel because Midian was overpowering Israel. Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They're hiding. And here in the story of Gideon, which is going to be the next two chapters as well, just so you know. Here in the story of Gideon, we have God calling Gideon a mighty warrior a mighty man of valor. And it's an amusing picture. It's humorous. It really is. It's serious, but it's also funny because Gideon doesn't know who he's talking to, literally doesn't know who he's talking to. He is just casually going about his work. And here's this person who's calling him to be valorous and mighty, which has echoes of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? And as a matter of fact, that can be a command from God, not just a, well, if you feel like it, you know, some people are strong and some people aren't strong and, you know, it's whatever. No, no, no. Be strong. Get strong. Increase your strength and be strong. Abide in strength and courage. Why? Because God is calling you to obedience and you're going to need strength to obey. You're going to need courage to obey in this particular context because there are going to be a lot of threats, and that's another reason you need to be strong so that you can confront those threats or you can deter them, but you need to be courageous because otherwise your strength counts for nothing. If you're very strong, but you're a coward, well then, what good is your strength to God's people who need to be liberated? They need to be delivered, it says, that's often the word that's used. They need to be delivered from their oppressors. We need someone to lift the oppression. Here's Gideon. Gideon, Yahweh is with you, oh, mighty man of valor. <laughs> Gideon's response is very cynical. He is a cynic here. He's seen some things, and seven years of oppression from Midian, that's quite a long time. And just think, with me about the three years and some change, about three and a half years, so about half of how long Midian oppressed Israel, that we've had Joe Biden as a president. And Joe Biden here in the US being president has meant that a lot of very radical leftists have been ruling the roost. They have been crowing and they have been attacking their political opponents, their ideological opponents, their cultural opponents. They say, oh, yeah, don't get into all this culture war stuff. Well, then what you're asking us to do is basically what the people of Israel did in Judges 6 2. You're asking us, if we're not going to fight, if we're not going to oppose, if we're not going to stand up to this oppression, if we're not going to be delivered from it, well, then what you're asking us to do, you're demanding us to do is to do the equivalent of Israel making dens in the mountain and cave and stronghold to hide themselves and to hide their families and to hide their material possessions and to hide their food. Three and a half years under the Biden regime and the radical leftists who are given a free hand under his watch, or at least under his name, ruling in turn, in his name, three and a half years has been long enough for many of us to throw in the towel. And I know this because I've talked with friends and family and strangers and I hear it. I hear the throwing in the towel. Sometimes it is just resignation. Yep, this country is over and done with. There's nothing that's going to save us now. And other times I hear it in the anger. I hear it and people getting very angry, and lashing out, and really not caring, it seems, over much whether they're persuasive, whether they're effective, but there's a kind of resignation to that. That frantic, swinging wildly, rhetorically, soon enough gives way to just joining with the people who are going to go into hiding for the foreseeable future. What happens if this country falls? Well, we'll figure it out when we get there. But give three and a half years, another three and a half years, and you have seven years of oppression. And just picture this too. Foreigners pouring across the borders and consuming like locusts what it is that is the surplus that you would normally put into storage. And oh, by the way, here's a a quick word. When thinking economically and socially and politically, the radical left loves to talk about surplus. Surplus this, surplus that, and let's redistribute arbitrarily. We'll decide who gets their fair share of what you earned. As Thomas Sowell would ask, what exactly is your fair share of what someone else has earned? But nevertheless, just think with me for a moment about on the one hand, you have those who work and they earn and they come up with more and more ingenious ways to work and they are more skillful, and they're more competent, and perhaps even inventive. Maybe they invent things that are labor-saving that allow them personally to do the job in half the time. What are they going to do with the other half of the time if they work the other half of the time as well, and they produce twice as much? The radical left, not unlike these Midianites, swoops in and says, ah, see, you have plenty. You have plenty to eat today. We're going to take the rest." Meanwhile. If you're the one who's come up with a labor-saving technique or device, you're like, well, wait, that other half is what I was going to eat tomorrow. That other half I was going to share with friends and family so as to build up my household, so as to be helpful to my extended family that perhaps has some elderly members. What are they going to eat now? You decided this was surplus and I don't need it. But that surplus wasn't just for me. It was for all the people that I am responsible for. And oh, by the way, that surplus might just have been what was going to allow me to switch gears and pivot and try something else entirely. Maybe the other half of my time, I don't spend farming, for instance, and growing twice as much food. Maybe the other half of the time, that that time that I saved with labor-saving technique and device, maybe that other half of my time, I was going to spend on inventing something completely different. that's helpful in a different sphere. Or maybe I was going to spend that half of my time with my family. You know, what's interesting is in the modern era where most of us in the developed world think in terms of either hourly wages or salary, and you're either going to be working 40 hours a week and your employer is going to try to not work you any overtime because they're required to pay you time and a half for every hour past 40, or your salary, and in theory, this should take you 40 hours. And if it takes you 60, well, then your employer will very often say, well, it should have been 40 hours worth of work. You should have said something. But then if you say something, you get into all kinds of problems where they say, oh, okay, well, maybe we should find somebody else. Yeah, the previous person that was in this position did it in 40 hours, or at least didn't complain. The guy in the neighboring branch in the next state over, he gets it done in 40 hours. Why aren't you? Hmm. Pretty soon, if you're in a salary position, you're working 60 hours based on a 40-hour pay rate, you say, never mind. It's fine. It's fine. And that's oppressive. That is oppressive, ladies and gentlemen. And part of how that gets to be oppressive is because the surplus, so-called more than your fair share, that was being earned by previous generations, the left gobbled up to support the welfare state. So they could vote themselves largesse, the radical left took from those who were very efficient, very industrious, to give to those who in many cases, not all, but in many cases, were lazy and worthless. And of course they get their cut in between, which they use to fund their various social engineering schemes. But here we have... Seven years of oppression by Median. Nothing is spared. All of the produce of the land, we're talking the grain, we're talking the livestock. And oh, by the way, if no sheep or donkey is left to the Israelites, it's like, oh, you've got one, you've got a sheep you're already eating. You don't need these other sheep. We've decided we're going to redistribute your sheep amongst ourselves. Your expectation should be. You're not going to have any sheep to breed together to have more sheep in the future. And that really is very oppressive. To have your ability to save for the future, to invest in building up your household, perhaps in having more children or encouraging your children who are grown, who have maybe they've married, encourage them to also have children and to support themselves. You're not going to have the wherewithal to do that. And so what's being taken away, even if it's not your life right now immediately, it is your life for the foreseeable future, so long as this is the way of things. Because now economic growth cannot happen. Economic growth cannot happen if all of the surplus is being taken away from the households where it is being generated and given to foreigners, given to invaders like so many locusts. You cannot, you cannot have economic growth in that case. You just can't. And so here's God speaking to Gideon and saying, Yahweh is with you. And funny enough, it's literally true. (laughs) It's literally true. Yahweh is with him right here, right now. In this case, at this point in the narrative, Yahweh is with you and Gideon doesn't take his meaning. Please, my Lord, and there's a lowercase Lord here, by the way, don't miss that. In the English Standard Version, it's my Lord, in an informal way, and that implies strongly, along with his next question, that he thinks he's just talking to some man. He's kind of absentmindedly carrying on this conversation with this person who has initiated it, whoever this is, while he continues on with his work. He's busy, right? He's got wheat to beat out in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So he's in the process right now. He's actively working right now instead of, oh, by the way, instead of working on any of those other things that I just mentioned, building up the household of his father or his own household, instead of, if he has children, investing in giving them instruction, training them, just hanging out with them as a father. If he has a wife, instead of hanging out with his wife, what's he doing instead? He is getting this wheat ready. To hide it. Please, my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Which is a fair question. That is a fair question, but also, too, what does the angel of Yahweh, who we should understand to be Jesus pre-incarnation, Jesus in the Old Testament, is Jesus, is the angel of the Lord saying to Gideon, the Lord is with you in a plural sense, Or in a singular sense? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sure a Hebrew scholar can speak to that. I don't know. But maybe it's more narrowly defined than what Gideon is taking it to mean. Gideon immediately assumes this is a collective community sense. As in, Yahweh is with Israel. And that is true as well, if it's true that God is going to deliver his people Israel from the Midianites. But it's true... Definitely, in particular, especially in the individual sense of God being with Gideon to deliver Israel by Gideon's hand. But he needs some convincing. He needs to see some proof, really, that this is Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he's speaking with. Gideon knows of that God. He knows of what God did for their ancestors, bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them into this land in the first place. Gideon knows that story. He's familiar with it. In fact, it's been passed down from the previous generation. And yet, what's curious is Gideon's own father has an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole. These are symbols and these are material effects of the worship of the gods of the Canaanites. These are in direct disobedience to Yahweh, who said, you shall have no other gods before me. To have these, perhaps, possibly, this is a theory, perhaps, just possibly, having these, Gideon's father having these is a kind of camouflage. Like putting on the uniform of the enemy so that maybe, possibly, when the enemy rolls through, they see these and they pass on because they say, oh, okay, yeah, they're not Israelites. But then, of course, that doesn't work. Otherwise, why is Gideon hiding the wheat still? But then God tells Gideon to tear down and to chop up and to repurpose the altar to Baal, which, by the way, means Lord, which is why it's all the more interesting that Lord is how he refers to the angel of Yahweh. Really, what needs to be sorted out here, what needs to be demonstrated is who is Lord? Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? And to put Baal in his proper place, which is underfoot for Yahweh and Yahweh's people, Gideon is told to tear down this altar and chop down the Asherah pole, which you should think of as being something like a giant phallus. That was part of the pagan worship of these false gods, these demons in Canaan. It's basically a a phallic symbol. Like an obelisk is a phallic symbol. Tear it down. The men of the town find that this has been torn down after Gideon does it. And to his credit, he does it. He takes 10 men, 10 men of the servants of his father's house. They tear this thing down and they do exactly what God told Gideon to do. under cover of night. So even there, there's kind of a, well, is God with me? They're not doing it out in the open. I suppose that wasn't part of the instructions. And so Gideon was like, well, he didn't say, I have to do it during the day. Let's do it at night. And then maybe nobody will know that it was me. Well, they find out. (laughs) They find out that it was Gideon, which is curious because how would they know? Maybe they asked around, maybe they interrogated. Maybe one of those 10 servants was like, ah, hey, I know about this. I know what happened. They find out and they go to Gideon's father, and they are not subtle about it. They say, bring him out. Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Paul and cut down the Asherah beside it. And to Joash's credit, Gideon's father's credit, he confronts and holds his ground against all those who are seeking the blood of his son. Will you contend for Baal? Great question. If you're doing this because you're so afraid of incurring Baal's wrath. What is his wrath if he can't fight for himself? Why would he be angry with you? Shouldn't he be the one coming after Gideon? Which is, of course, a very confusing question if they're just kind of like, huh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, I'm thinking of something like, not quite this frivolous and silly, but something like that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they're trying to figure out what to do with a woman who's accused of being a witch. And the townspeople, the villagers, the peasants who want to see her burned at the stake are having this back and forth with a wise knight. And he is able to play them like a fiddle very easily. And they're just extraordinarily dumb people. And you would have to be really dumb to be worshiping Baal in Israel as an Israelite, or to be angry enough to kill your fellow Israelite. And who knows? Maybe they're afraid. Maybe it wasn't Joash, and maybe it wasn't any of the men of this town who built this altar and erected this Asherah pole. Perhaps it was the Midianites themselves. Perhaps it was the Canaanites who said, as a sign of our domination of you, we're going to erect the symbols of our religion, like flying a rainbow flag, you might say, to get you crushed in spirit, to drive home the point that we now dominate you. We own you. Anytime we want, we'll be back. Like Calvera from The Magnificent Seven, these bandits who are harassing and tormenting this Mexican village. The 1960 version is the best. It just just is. But Calvera, the leader of this band of outlaws, shows up, demands the food, and then he and his men ride back into the hills, ride back to their hideout. Essentially, Gideon is being called to be something like the Magnificent Seven, more or less. You have this tense standoff, and maybe it's the men of the town terrified that this is going to provoke these raiders when they come back and they see that what they built up has been torn down by one of us, any of us, and we didn't build it right back. We want to be able to tell them, we caught the guy who did it and we killed him. And we're very sorry, and this won't happen again. We handled it. And what lends credibility to that being their motivation, in part, is we see very next that the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East came together and crossed the Jordan and encamped in the Valley of Jezreel. And maybe they're not provoked by this. They probably would have done that anyways. But this is how organized crime very often works. You find out that somebody in the territory that you're laying claim to, the part of town that your guys collect the protection money from, that part of town, somebody stood up to even one of your low-level thugs or they tore down something that you guys built up as a symbol of your marking that territory. And now you've got to make an example or else you're going to lose control of everybody. If everybody sees that you can tear down the Asherah pole, tear down the altar of Baal, If everybody sees that, more people might start joining in telling us, no, we don't want that. And then at the last, we have Gideon laying out a fleece because you have to understand seven years, that's quite a long time really to resign yourself to this is just the way that it is. This is the way that it's going to be from now on. And also interesting is the fathers of this generation, Gideon's generation, And fathers here doesn't necessarily just mean fathers. It can also mean grandfathers, forefathers. But the fathers, the older generation had told the Israelites about what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt. One must wonder how clear those older generations were on the macro societally in talking about how God had judged and punished Israel for disobedience, had disciplined and corrected Israel for disobedience and faithlessness and grumbling and murmuring. Maybe they just didn't go into those parts. They said, oh, yeah, we don't want to upset the children. No, no, you don't want to upset yourself. When you talk about those things, you get upset because you don't like that that stuff was in there. You don't like being reminded. So you're only going to talk about the positive and encouraging and the happy and the tame and the sanitized version of these things. That's curious. And yet God is patient with Gideon. Speculation aside, conjecture aside, God is patient with Gideon when Gideon asks for some signs in the way of laying out a fleece. And we have that as a word picture that we use, some of us. It's more common among, I'd say, charismatic Pentecostal type Christians. We're going to lay out a fleece. If there's dew on the fleece alone and the ground is dry, I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand. And that's a great way to put it, by the way. Gideon's attitude on this is most excellent where he even just frames what God might do here. I just just want to make sure. I just want to double check the math. (laughs) They've learned to be very careful in Israel with seven years of Midianite oppression. If you're going to save Israel by my hand, let the fleece be wet while the ground around it is dry. And it was so. And then the next time he's like, okay, just one more, right? Just just one more, please. Let it be dry on the fleece alone and all the ground have dew and be wet. And it was so. And so he knows, right? Now he knows that this is going to be the case. God is going to deliver Israel by Gideon's hand. Now, let's get into some current events. The birth rate the fertility rate in the U S at present is 1.64. That's what it is now. And it's been fairly flat, but it is declining. It's been fairly flat, but in 2020, 1.64, that comes down from 2010 when it was 1.93. So that's, for rough math, one-third of one. So maybe you could say for every three couples who are having children 10 years prior, only one of those three couples is going to have a child. Something like that. Not exactly, but that gives you a rough approximation. In the year 2000, the number was 2.06. And that is to say, on average, per female, per household. But then you have to have households in order for that to work. But per female, in 2000, the average was 2.06. So most women would have two children in the year 2000 here in the US. In 1990, it was about that as well. 2.08, very flat, practically no change. In 1980, and I was born in the 80s, by the way, 1986, my brother was born in 1990. In 1980, we were at 1.81. So it was actually lower in 1980 than it was in the 90s and the 2000s. But right now, or at least three years ago, we're lower than it was in 1980 at 1.84 births per woman. 1970, though, it was 2.48. So... On average, a woman would have two and a half kids. So that is to say, if there were two women, one might have two children and the other would typically have three. Or, of course, there would be any number of combinations here. One might have one and the other would have four. That was not so unusual, but most people had more than one child, I think, I would guess. Some women didn't have any children. 1960, the fertility rate was 3.65 in the US. 3.65 is not quite four, but that is a growing population. That is being fruitful and multiplying almost. That is to say for every husband and wife, for instance, and most of the people who were having the kids, used to be married in this country, not all, it's never been all, but a husband and a wife, they might get married. And on average, they would have four children and some women didn't have any and some women had one. And so that brought the average down and plenty had five, six, seven, eight kids. But if a couple had four kids, they multiplied. They were being fruitful and multiplying. They were multiplying by two. Even if they had three, they were multiplying by one and a half. And so you can grow a population that way. You can grow the number of people in your country that way. From 1960 to 2020, two kids on average are missing from the typical American household. On average, two kids are missing. Going from 3.65 to 1.64, where did those other two kids go? I'll tell you. Those other two kids weren't conceived in the first place Because young people waited, on average, an additional 10 years to get married in the first place. And if they were behaving themselves, they weren't having relations until they got married. And so no pregnancies. That's typically the way that it works. There is at least one exception. (laughs) One exception we know of in the person of Jesus. His mom was behaving. She was being a good girl, a good woman. And yet she did get pregnant. But that was the exception. The rule is if you're not doing the deed, you're not going to give birth to any children. You're not going to get pregnant in the first place. But when you move back by 10 years on average, when young women in particular, the men it's not as important, but the women in particular, if you move back by 10 years from on average age 20 to on average age 30 or thereabouts, which is what it is now, you have taken away the most fertile years of a woman's life. If she aspires to being a mother and having children, if she aspires to having, say, a child every two to four years, having enough time to potty train and wean and get the last child or the previous child that they had up and about and toddling and started with their first year of school, if she waits on average two to four years, You've just taken away those two children by pushing back when she's going to get married and when she's going to be having relations with a man she's committed to. And these two are pretty much me repeating myself. I repeat myself. That's where those two kids went. Also, those two kids were removed from the equation by the legalization in 1973 of abortion, or at least the Supreme Court having laid down the so-called law of the land that abortion is somehow a woman's right. It's not right, it's murder. Murder is not a right. You might be freed to murder. That does not mean that it's right for you to murder. You don't have a right to murder your own child or hire somebody else to do it. But in 1973, thereabouts, we see the fertility rate drop off significantly. 1.88 in 1973. Compared with 1963, where it was 3.32. That's a significant Drop with the legalization of abortion. Also, in this span of time, you have women taking birth control. What's interesting is you have the sexual revolution, 60s and 70s, free love, lots of activity that is liable to result in children being conceived and born. Also, at the same time, you have this appetite for being able to prevent pregnancy. So you can do those things, whether or not you're married to the person you're doing them with, absent any commitment, absent any fear of God or obedience to God or love for God in a totally selfish way. And that's also where those extra children, two children, went to. They weren't conceived in the first place because the woman was on birth control or the man had himself sterilized voluntarily a few decades prior to when our fertility rate in this country dropped off a cliff. It was the ambition of the eugenicists, the social Darwinists, to take those who were deemed unfit to reproduce and sterilize them against their will. That was the kinder, gentler form of eugenics. What the Nazis practiced in rounding people up and killing them, starving them to death, gassing them, experimenting on them, shooting them. That was the harder form of eugenics. But the softer form of eugenics was you just... Take whatever opportunity you can to sterilize the people you don't think are fit to reproduce. If they come in for some other procedure, you just give them a hysterectomy if they're a woman. You just give them a vasectomy if they're a man. If you arrest them for criminal behavior and you just decide, ah, while we've got them, we're going to go ahead and tranquilize and operate like we would with stray pets, stray animals, dogs and cats. Spay and neuter your dogs and cats, please, people. Like Bob Barker used to say for decades on The Price is Right. Something shifted. And I think what shifted is that television and radio and the big screen started to brainwash people into believing that you should have yourself sterilized. A lot of y'all should just not have any children. If you're a certain kind of person... It would probably be best if sex is viewed exclusively as a recreational activity. And oh, by the way, don't you want to be able to do it with whoever you want to do it with? Let's encourage that as a way of giving you your own motivation for having yourself sterilized effectively or aborting any child who would result from your activities. We'll convince you that it's your idea by fostering the sexual revolution. We'll get a whole generation or two hopped up on drugs. We'll feed them these messages in music, in radio programs, in books, in movies, in television shows. We'll convince these people who are hopped up on drugs that raising children is hard, it's difficult, it's disempowering. You don't want that. You want to participate in the economy. You want to go and make money. That's empowering. You want to work just like the men do. This is a very Marxist way of thinking. This is a very leftist way of thinking. And it has taken a hold in a lot of people's minds, in a lot of people's hearts, to where they don't have any idea that they have been hypnotized. They have no idea that they've been brainwashed. This is all propaganda. They think this is just what people have always thought. People always would have preferred to not have surplus population, which was a line straight out of the Communist Manifesto, or phrase, I should say, you find throughout the Communist Manifesto. Surplus production and surplus population both alike, Marx and Engels had a solution for. And here in the US, because there was so much affluence, because America couldn't be defeated in a conventional war, what was hoisted upon us instead was a lot of propaganda. The leftist agitators and activists in league with the very wealthy who thought of themselves as gods, they have God complexes, they have had God complexes with all that wealth and all that free time, all that power over the nation and its productive capacity and its people who are the means of production, by the way, that's what Marx and Engels were really getting at with seizing the means of production, gaining control of the means of production at the end of the day, the means of production are you and me. And now we're to the point that we have politicians on the left getting up and defending a hands-off approach to securing our southern border. They defend it by saying that Americans are just not good at picking fruit. Americans are just not good at cleaning their own houses. Americans are just not good at raising their own kids. Americans are just not good at whatever it is we want the illegal aliens to do for us for low wages off the books unless they'll vote for Democrats, in which case we'll put them on the books. And you're a racist if you object. Americans are just not good at having children. That's the next thing. That's the new thing we're being told. Americans, young American people who we have talked into taking puberty blockers and undergoing gender reassignment surgery, Americans who we have convinced have no future because of climate change, and we'll make sure, right? It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy because we'll take away their capacity to earn a living wage and to be financially independent, to own their own home, to own their own vehicle of their choice, to get married at a young age, to have children, to train up those children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. American young people are just not having kids. So we need illegal immigration because these migrants from Central America and South America, they are having children. And you know what? I'll be the first to say, I have no objection to immigrants coming up from Central and South America who know that a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and that children are a blessing from God if they will abide by the laws of our country and not seek to overthrow the laws of our country. But I think very strongly, we should make sure that only those type of people are coming into our country and setting up shop here and living here. And the only way to do that is if we actually control our southern border and we interview people as they're coming across. Hi, what's your interest? What are you coming for? How long will you be here? Can I see your documentation? Can I see some evidence that you are who you say you are? Because otherwise, what you get is if they're fleeing political turmoil, violent crime, where they're coming from, if they're fleeing communist dictatorships, radical socialist totalitarians, and they come here, well, what's to say they're not also being accompanied by those socialist dictators, those Marxist communistic tyrants, those violent criminals? We don't want those guys. We don't even want those guys to be down in Central and South America, but we definitely don't want them here. And yet for all the same reasons, and it's all the same people who have helped to make it the reality that we're below the replacement rate right now in this country, all the same people at the top who make those decisions, who pull the levers and they push the buttons and they flip the switches and they doggle the knobs, all those same people almost seem to want the chaos. They almost seem to want the violent criminals and the radical Marxists to come up. It's almost like they want to destabilize the towns and the villages and the cities here in the U.S. As a matter of fact, I think they do want that in part because they don't live in those places. They're not going to be the ones who suffer in any immediate sense, the consequences of their own decisions. And that too is oppressive. Here's one of the forms that this takes Colin Jones reports for The Blaze, Marxist teacher who called for forceful cultural revolution against whiteness, lands gig as a state representative. Tim Hernandez will now be a state representative in Denver after a committee of Democrats filled the seat after its incumbent, Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, was elected to the Denver City Council, according to Fox News. Hernandez previously worked at Denver's North High School. He apparently made headlines last year after his teaching contract with Denver Public Schools was not renewed. Don't say apparently, please. By the way, Colin Jones, if you're listening, please don't say apparently there. It's not apparent to everybody. It's not. It's, it's not. It's the wrong word. Just say he made headlines last year if he did. And if he didn't, then don't say it. But of course he did. His teaching contract last year was not renewed. As a result, Colin Jones reports, students walked out in protest. Quote, the leaders of my school have labeled me as divisive and disruptive, Hernandez said per KMGH-TV. Quote, the principal of my school has called me aggressive at attacking coded language that is hurtful and detrimental to men of color, end quote. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. The picture of this teacher, Tim Hernandez, borrowed from the Denver Post media news group photo by Aaron Ontiveros. The picture of this teacher, long hair, beard, looking very much like he aspires to be another Jay, has a Black Lives Matter flag in the background, as well as a flag for Aztlan. What is Aztlan, you might be wondering? Well, if I go on over to the Facebook page for Aztlan flag, I find a meme. While on the subject of foreign governments invading and occupying land, The United States is a foreign government occupying Chicano-Mexicano native land. The caption on this image from Aztlan flag on Facebook reads as follows. Dear Raza de Aztlan, please don't forget to take the Chicano political mobilization survey and if you already have, share widely with others. Gracias. Quote, this study is being conducted to identify key issues in language that will politically mobilize Chicana, chicano Peoples in the United States. The hope is by identifying the keywords that aid in political mobilization, political parties specific to the Chicano Latino community can build mass mobilization campaigns. What are they getting at? Liberation. Liberation of who? The Chicano and Latino people. And what do they mean by that? They mean no longer having this broad swath of territory, which is now a part of the United States of America being a part of the United States of America. Long story short, this guy's a Marxist and he's wearing a t-shirt that says disruptive educator. Then he complains that the school saying he was being aggressive and attacking, they are, wait for it, racist. So if he's not renewed as a teacher, we're just not going to bring you back next year. We're not firing you, but we're not going to bring you back next year because you're aggressive, you're hostile. The school district is racist. Of course they are. Of course they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the reason. It's not possible that you could be Hispanic, Latino, Chicano and also aggressive. Yeah, no. No. I think that's racist actually. To assume that because you are ethnically not from Western Europe or Northern Europe, therefore you can't be criticized. I think that's racist. Particularly, I think it's racist if you mobilize all of your students to protest, you not being brought back, you failed up, which is common for leftists. That's what they do. That's what the radical Marxists routinely do. They try these things, and when these things lead to all kinds of strife and problems and poverty and crime and dysfunction and unhappiness, they point to the exact things that they themselves have caused, and they say, see, we just need to scale up. And so now he's going to be in Colorado's House of Representatives. And not for no reason did his students protest and walk out. The reason they were protesting and walking out at his not being brought back is because he's been doing it. He's been mobilizing these students to become radical leftists right here in our backyard here in Colorado. And now he's going to scale up. He's going to help write the laws that we all live under in the state of Colorado, which for quite some time now, has been a testbed for radical leftism in the U.S. more broadly. I'm reading Politics According to the Bible by Wayne Grudem. And Wayne Grudem, writing in the late 2000s, publishing 2010, talks about court cases in the 90s that were test cases here in Colorado. It's not a new thing. It didn't just happen in the last 5, 10 15, 20 years, this has been going on for at least 30 years, but then that doesn't come to be the case in the 90s, except that it was already being mobilized a decade, two decades prior to that. And this also is part of why we're seeing the fertility rate decline, why we're seeing economic decline, why we're seeing so much polarization. It's straight out of Saul Alinsky's playbook. This is rules for radicals. 100%. 100%. This is community organizing, dressed up in some cases as teaching children reading, writing, and arithmetic, or literature, or social studies, or biology, or whatever, anything. Everything will be a vehicle for community organization to bring about communism, to implement Marx's ideas, his theories, his prescription, his philosophy, which ultimately goes right back to Satan, because Marx loved him some Satan fascinated by Satan. Richard Wormbrand has an excellent book on Marx, which makes a compelling case that Marx actually literally sold his soul to the devil before coming up with these evil, evil ideas. But if you find it in your local public school being championed by a person of color, you'll be told you can't criticize it. You can't object to it. You can't oppose it. One On the grounds of your christianity because that would be establishing religion which is against the constitution which is nonsense by the way absolute nonsense but if they can't get you there and you avoid all talk of the bible says this our founding fathers believe that the next thing they'll get you on if you make any reference to the historical precedent of the founding fathers generation to the present and you say, these are our conservative values, our conservative principles, and this guy, this gal is trying to tear that down and trying to enlist our children to help in tearing it down and carrying out a leftist revolution in this country. If you say that, then they'll say, you're a racist. If it's a woman, they'll say, you're a sexist. If it's a homosexual, they'll say, you're a homophobe. If it's a transgendered person, they'll say, you're a transphobe. And all the while, what they're doing is they're putting you on your heels. They're making you have to explain yourself, justify yourself for having any objection whatsoever to children being taught to tear down the means of generating household wealth and protecting household wealth and growing households. Because all of these people, when you get right down to it, are anti-human. They actually hate people. Racism, bad. Sexism, bad. Homophobia, transphobia, bad. Everybody should get the same. But in their Marxist prescriptions, every time they've been tried, every place they've been tried, what is the result but that everyone suffers? Some suffer more than others and that's called social justice. If previously they had it kind of good, they had it pretty good and they didn't want this. They worked hard and they earned and they protected what they earned from predators and they built their wealth and they built their households, yeah. We might have to redistribute those guys a little harder. We've got to tear them down socially, politically, economically, religiously. If you find this kind of community organizing in your public school, know what it is that they're going to try and hit you with when you object. If you find it in your city council, know what they're going to try and hit you with. If you find it in your state house of representatives, know that they're going to try and grab from a bag of tricks anything that they think they can throw at you. And they'll throw it all at you. And if any of it works, well, then they'll move on. And maybe they'll even move on if none of it works, if you just keep coming. And then that's when they start trying to find that you have committed a crime. They look for improprieties. And if they find anything, then they'll say, ah, see, that proves that they were, these are the things. This is Mao's cultural revolution. But keep in mind, this guy is not just a, Marxist. He's not just a community organizer. Here's his tweet from January 25th, 2021, so that you get some flavor of what specifically, more specifically, this guy has said that led to his not having his contract renewed by Denver City Public Schools. And I quote, am I denying the freedom to uphold white supremacy? If so, I'm in favor of that denial. And white supremacy is currently upheld by force. So yes, I'm advocating a forceful cultural revolution wherein we assert the dignity of life for all at the expense of white supremacy. 4 p.m. January 25th, 2021. That was his tweet. That's the guy that students staged a walkout protest for, which is to say, he's got those kids. He and his associates got to those kids. And they want to get to your kids too. And this is why we homeschool. At 26 years old, Hernandez will become the youngest member of the Colorado legislature. He will also be the first member of Generation Z to serve as a state lawmaker. And they wanted that, right? They wanted that so badly. He and the rest of the leftists in Colorado and in the US, they wanted that so that they can prime the rest of Gen Z to be leftist or the leftists in Generation Z They can make sure they're the ones who represent their whole generation and therefore they're the ones who will implement this Marxist takeover once and for all. And again, this is why we homeschool. Hopping over to the Daily Wire. Daily Wire News reports, August 31st, Elon Musk blasts school turning his son trans and into a full communist. Tesla CEO and ex-owner says in a forthcoming biography that a far-left school that his son attended in Los Angeles turned him against the tech mogul. The comments are contained in Elon Musk from Walter Isaacson. The Wall Street Journal featured an excerpt from the book on Thursday. The excerpt was about what was behind Musk's drive to purchase Twitter, which is now X. Now, here's the quote from Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk. Musk's anti-woke sentiments were partly triggered by the decision of his oldest child, Xavier, then 16, to transition. Quote, hey, I'm transgender, and my name is now Jenna. She texted the wife of Elon's brother. Quote, don't tell my dad. When Musk found out, he was generally sanguine, but then Jenna became a fervent Marxist and broke off all relations with him. Quote, she went beyond socialism to being a full communist and thinking that anyone rich is evil, he says. The rift pained him more than anything in his life since the infant death of his firstborn child, Nevada. Quote, I've made many overtures, he says. Quote, but she doesn't want to spend time with me, end quote. He blamed it partly on the ideology he felt that Jenna imbibed at Crossroads, the progressive school she attended in Los Angeles. Twitter, he felt, had become infected by a similar mindset that suppressed right-wing and anti-establishment voices. The Daily Wire picks back up with another quote from Musk. It's full-on communism and a general sentiment that if you're rich, you're evil. The relationship may change, but I have very good relationships with all the others of my children, can't win them all. End quote. Here we have someone who is still not quite getting it. Still not quite. He's so close, but this really is going to require that we not use preferred pronouns. It really is. When you use the preferred pronouns, you're affirming the lie and you're actually enabling it after a fashion. And if there are Already going to hate you anyways. You might as well tell the truth. Live Not By Lies by Rodre here comes to mind here. Live Not By Lies, this great essay by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, where he says, we are the problem. It's not always they. It's always they when we talk about it. They, them, these people, these party bosses, these Soviet committees. It's always Moscow. It's always these people those people. No, it's us because we give cover for their lies by agreeing with their lies. We are told to lie and then we lie. We give credence to the violence that they do to people when we lie because we're afraid that they'll be violent towards us as well. Live not by lies. That's a great slogan. That's a great motto. They are going to hate you anyways, but at least if you told the truth, you would give them something else to go on if at a certain point they are going to break away and they're going to change their minds and they're going to leave this behind because you know what, this is bankrupt. Not just literally, although that's quite a lot, not just literally bankrupting our country, but this is morally bankrupt. This is spiritually bankrupt. It's intellectually bankrupt. They try and blind you with a lot of advanced degrees, trust the experts, but it's all a lot of nonsense designed to confuse you. And while you're confused, while you're distracted by them pretending that they know these things that they so confidently proclaim, all the while they're just making stuff up, running with it, while you're distracted, while they have you held at bay, they go and ram through some procedural thing that is now going to make it illegal for you to effectively oppose them. When you get wise, when you realize that, hey, wait a second, this is not okay. This is bad. This is nonsense. By the time you are on to them, they will have moved on to the next thing, to the next lie. So you can't just affirm yesterday's lies because, well, it's not going to make any difference. No. If you were to commit yourself to telling the truth, what you might find is that the truth would set you free from their oppressive schemes. And it might, but I'm not guaranteeing, it might set them free as well if they would, at a certain point, suffer the consequences for what they're doing and... Look for something better. But if you're lying right along with them, you have effectively damned them to continuing on in this. And you've also made others vulnerable to going along with the ones who hate you. Where does it stop? Well, it only stops when we are strong and courageous, when we are marked by valor. It only stops then because it takes a lot of courage to tell the truth. Going back to the blaze though, some reporting by Paul Saka, Tennessee Teacher of the Month, Charged with rape of student. Here we have in view Casey McGrath, 28, arrested August 18th, charged with aggravated statutory rape, according to Hamilton County Criminal Court records. Aggravated statutory rape is a Class D felony punishable by two to 12 years in prison. According to Fox News, on August 14th, indictment accused McGrath of, quote, unlawfully and knowingly engaging in sexual penetration with a person of at least 13 years of age, but less than 18 noting that she is, quote, at least 10 years older than the victim. The alleged sex crime was committed on May 1st, 2022. McGrath was a 10th grade geometry and algebra teacher at Chattanooga Central High School. WTVC reported, quote, back in April, we were allowed to review McGrath's personnel file. Those files show McGrath was suspended with pay and under investigation for inappropriate physical contact with a student that does not result in harm. Elsewhere in the file, it says the inappropriate contact was of a sexual nature, end quote. Now get this, the next paragraph. Hamilton County School District's Communication Officer Steve Doremus said McGrath was suspended without pay on March 31st and, quote, was not rehired for the current school year, end quote. McGrath received her master's degree in education from Vanderbilt University. McGrath was hired at Chattanooga Central High School in 2020. According to the school's website, McGrath was named Teacher of the Month in October of 2021. Now, let's just take a step back for a moment. And let's recognize that this young woman, 28, is about eight years older than what the average was for when young people got married from 1890 to 2010. Starting from the top, four females, because this is a female teacher, 1890, 22, 1900, 21.9, 1910, 21.6, 1920, 21.2, 1930, 21.3, 1940, 21.5, 1950, 20.3, 1960, 20.3, 1970, 20.8, 1980, 22, 1990, 23.9, 2000, 25.1, 2010, 26.1. In other words, on average, back in the 70s, From 1890 to 1970, a good 80 years span, the average age at which a woman would get married in the U.S. hovered between 20 years of age and 22 years of age. According to Statista, right now, or I should say in 2021, but close enough, The average age for the first wedding among women in the United States, and I hate the way they even phrase that, by the way, the average age for marriage among women is 28.6 years. So that is to say, this teacher being 28, she's right there at the age that most of her peer group is getting married. Is she married? Probably not. But here's the thing, right? This is what happens... (laughs) Even setting the Bible aside, this is what we expect to happen with young people. Young people, as in late teens, in their 20s, we expect that they are going to be interested in doing the things which we are programmed to want to do, which result in having children. And then we create conditions in which it is extremely challenging for young people to get married. And I don't just mean economically, I mean socially as well. Young couples say, we want to get married. And everybody around, parents, friends, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody around is saying, oh, are you sure? Unless you have no debt and you have your house paid for and you have a really good job and she has a really good job or he has a really good job, unless you have all these things completely perfect, you shouldn't get married because it'll probably end in divorce. Because heaven knows previous generations that got married at a high rate never had any problems, you know, the ones that didn't get divorced, they never had any problems to work through together. They didn't have a framework. Now we have problems. Well, where did the problems come from? Didn't they come from our abandoning the biblical prescription? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying his life down for her. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything, as unto the Lord. When Paul writes about, I wish that all were as I am, that is unmarried, he says, but... Because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband because it's not just the men who get weird and go astray into sexual immorality when they don't have an outlet that's appropriate. It's also the women. And you put 10th graders in close proximity day after day, all day, every day, close proximity with unmarried 20-something Teachers, what else were you expecting? What did you think was going to happen? Now that doesn't mean that it's okay. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation. But again, this is why we homeschool and this is why I want my sons to learn how to manage their finances and how to work hard. And yes, I think they should have businesses. If they want to have a business, start a business and get it launched, and work for themselves, I think that's a great idea. Be dependent on no one, Paul says to the Church of Thessalonica. Aspire to living a quiet life, working with your hands so that you can walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one and have a good conscience. I want my sons to learn to work with their hands and work with their minds, not either or, but both and, own their own businesses and get married young and stay married. Get married, stay married, have a whole mess of kids because that is biblical. (laughs) That's what God's word gives us as... A roadmap and as a mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is a very unfortunate story out of Tennessee. But then this is what you get when you say there is no such thing as other people's children. And this is what you get when parents are very hands off and they just send their kids to the schools and they trust that the schools are going to take good care of them. You get teachers like 26-year-old Marxist agitator turned state representative and you get volleyball coach, algebra teacher, turned sexual partner in Tennessee. And this is also a symptom of being under oppression. Yes, every individual involved here is accountable for their own sin before God, but you can't miss that the trends and the demographics and the statistics over time are driven by macro-level decisions. Macro-level decisions of what to prioritize and who we will be as a people and who we will not be allowed to be as a people. If you start bringing your Christian faith into these things and you're told, get out, 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 what we're dealing with is what C.S. Lewis talked about in The Abolition of Man. Castrating and bidding the geldings be fruitful. Making men without chests. And by golly, nature abhors a vacuum. And so something else fills that vacuum of what God says is good and moral and appropriate and righteous and what will be blessed, what will lead to good outcomes. What fills the vacuum is self-indulgence, predatory behavior, manipulations, Raiding parties that send people into hiding, that send people into the mode of building dens in the mountains and in the caves and in the strongholds. Places to hide their wealth, to hide their talents, to hide their capacity to do what is right. Because I wouldn't want anybody else seeing that I have this surplus or that I am exceptional in this way because then what would they do? Then they would try and take it away. They would try and destroy me. I'm going to hide this. I don't want to make any waves. I don't want to attract any attention. For one last story, though, consider Katie Jerkovich reporting for The Daily Wire. Kevin Sorbo talks about attacks on masculinity in the culture, new children's book, and more. Kevin Sorbo, I remember from being in junior high, high school, right about that age, and his playing Hercules in the live action TV show. That's what I recall. And then that show ended and he became the captain on a sci-fi show called Andromeda. And he was good in that. And it was fun, right? It was a fun thing to watch Hercules or Andromeda. I enjoyed both. I would say I never enjoyed either as much as Star Trek, The Next Generation. That was my favorite growing up, but Kevin Sorbo, as it turns out, as the years go by, is a Christian and he's a conservative. And his wife actually is very active in promoting home education, homeschooling. They're very outspoken. And here is a write-up where he is talking to the Daily Wire about masculinity in our culture. What is the attitude towards men being manly in our culture, boys being boys? Is that viewed as a good thing or is that viewed as something you want to tamp down, root out, and cure? Is it a sickness? Is it seen as toxic? Is it seen as something like a mental illness or a social contagion that men would be men and boys would be boys Katie Jurkovich writes, the 64-year-old actor said his book centers on a lion cub, his book being Test of Lionhood, who through a series of events must face his own fears and accept a quest that, quote, leads him to courage and strength, end quote, to save his sister. He said the reason he decided to do a kid's book rather than one geared towards an older group is that kids today need to hear the message Let boys be boys and let girls be girls. Look what we are doing to kids today. From our public education system through television and movies, this whole thing about toxic masculinity. For decades now, we have been trying to make men more feminine and we're trying to make women more masculine. We need our boys to become strong men who can lead their families, communities in a more positive direction. The Bible calls for us to be providers, for men to be providers, and that takes nothing away from women, the Andromeda star Said it's clear the family unit is under attack, especially fatherhood, not just in entertainment, but in every aspect of our lives. Quote, the Bible teaches us to honor the father, sitcoms teach us to dishonor the father. For a confused generation of men, which we have now, it's much easier for public schools, universities, TVs, movies, government to control that. It's a total opposite of a generation of men that are seeking the truth, which is why I think they reject people like me who stand up for conservative values and Christian values. Now, I'll just pause right there. You can go read the rest of it if you please, if you like. But I'll just pause right there and I'll say, amen, 100%. I totally agree. I 100% agree with Kevin Sorbo here. That's exactly right. Except on the front of older men needing to hear this as well. I, I wouldn't say that the boys especially need to hear it, but the older men don't. But I would say something similar. I would say it's probably that those who are older men need to hear it, but then a lot of them have a lot of reasons to not want to hear it. They're afraid. They're in the place of Gideon's father, perhaps. If a fight comes and somebody actually outright demands the head of their own son, then they'll stand up. But until it gets to that level, yeah, whatever. Build your altar to Baal. Set up your Asherah pole on my property. Fine, I don't care whatever, but if his son tears down the Asherah pole and tears down the altar of Baal, then maybe the older man will say, whoa, wait a second. No, 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 no. I'm not giving you my son to kill him. No, 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 no. You're false God. If he's so strong, if he's so mighty, why doesn't he fight for himself? Hmm? Why don't you let him avenge himself? Let Baal contend against my son. Mind your own business. Carry on but it's going to take more than that too. It's going to take more than the older men waiting until the very last possible instant to do the bare minimum. Yeah, no, you can't kill my son. What? How did we let it get to this point? (laughs) It does require telling the older men, encouraging the older men to be sober-minded and to teach the younger men. That's the other half of this. It's great that Kevin Sorbo wrote a children's book. I'm not knocking that at all. And it's not like I'm trying to criticize him here, but I want to say that I disagree on one point here that the older men don't need to be told something. I think what the older men need to be told is, hey, listen, you need to be engaged in teaching the younger men and encouraging the younger men to be self-controlled, to be studying the word. You need to be setting them up for success, to be able to provide for a wife and children. There's such a hands-off approach And it is so not helpful. For all the press that toxic masculinity gets, what I don't hear and I don't see is the biblical prescription where Paul says the older men should teach the younger men and the older women should teach the younger women. And when you don't have that happening, when you don't see that happening in a respectful way, isn't that just a continuation of the same attitude from the 60s and the 70s, the Sexual Revolution, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Sow Your Wild Oats, Make Love Not War crowd. Isn't that just the same song, a different verse? Now that they're older, they're just continuing on in that track, so many of them. Now, maybe part of the reason why it's not happening is because the older men are afraid. They're afraid of risking jeopardizing their status quo. And typically it is the older men who are more established. And that's always been the case, but it's especially the case as our country is in something like economic freefall. When young couples can't afford to buy a home, they can't get a loan because home prices are through the roof. Where are the older men who are in positions of leadership or who have the free time? Where are the older men to say, hey, we need to zone more for residential. We need to figure out how to get more houses built, more single family units built in our area? Where are the older men to say we need to bring the tax rate down or provide tax incentives for young people who get married and have children? We need to promote school choice. Where are the older men in leading those efforts? They make it too easy when they're hands off living in their big comfortable houses that are paid off that they can take out home equity loans on to do their special projects in their retirement. Out back, oh, we're going to build a really fancy pizza oven and a gazebo. And we're going to put in a big swimming pool and I'm going to redo the deck. We're going to reside the front of the house. We're going to do all these things. Yeah, you know what? Great. Great that you have the ability, the wherewithal to do that from the equity in your home because home prices have gone up so, so, so much. You make it too easy for the younger generations to resent you. And you make it too easy for Marxists, let's say, who go from not being brought back the next year at a public school in North Denver to then go on to writing the laws. And your refusal to get engaged when it was an opportunity to promote what was good and to help young people who got married, started having kids, had kids, are homeschooling, your failure to... Step in and help them because, hey, these home prices going up and up and up is really good for me. It's really good for me and my wife. It's selfish. And I would even say it's negligent. You know, I think if more Christian older men in the American church were discipling more of the young Christian men in the American church, particularly those who are married, but actually even those who aren't married, I think we would see the age at which young people get married, come down. It should be coming down (laughs) from 29. That tells me that older men are not discipling the younger men to get married younger, which they should be. I think if the older men were discipling the younger men, we would also see the fertility rate come up. And we're not seeing that. I think if we had the older men discipling the younger men, about how, hey, listen, you've got to provide and protect and lead your family. I think what we would see is the cost of housing come down and the cost of utilities come down because what the older men would find as they talk with the younger men is that it is extraordinarily difficult to pay $2,100 a month and then come the electric bill to pay $500 more for just the electricity. And because you're homeschooling, you have high-speed internet, so that everybody can be on the internet at the same time and get everything done that they need to get done during the day. And here comes the electric bill, and it's $180. If the older men were discipling the younger Christian men in particular, and they encouraged them to get married rather than burn with lust, and they encouraged them to see children as a blessing from Yahweh, a heritage from the Lord, and they were having children, I think also the older men in the church would be seeing and hearing that it's a very difficult thing For the wife to stay home and homeschool the kids while the father goes off to work and actually makes enough money to provide for his family and still be around to disciple his children. I think the older men in the church would find that with all this spare time, maybe they don't need to take out another home equity loan. Maybe that's proof when they're able to do these pet projects, maybe it's not proof that they worked so hard in their working life. So much harder than the younger generations. Maybe it's proof that actually a lot of these things they have been asleep at the wheel about are benefiting them and they're happy to just let those things continue as they are. Because, you know, retirement's right around the corner. But then the short-sightedness of it is what's going to support your retirement when the whole economy collapses? Do you have children? How are they doing? How are they set up to be successful in helping take care of you and your wife, older men, when you can't? Take care of yourselves anymore? Do you have grandchildren? How are they going to be set up to relate to you and your wife when you can't take care of yourself anymore? And particularly if the whole financial system were to collapse, if the stock market were to well and truly collapse and fall apart and implode, are you investing in those future generations in such a way as to give them the capacity to even take care of themselves? And I say that, and it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's just these, these millennials and Gen Zers. Always complaining. I wish they would just get to work. No, no. There's more to it than that. When 27% of my salary is taken right off the top before I see a cent of it, and it goes to fund all of these things, it's not just young people need to work harder. And it's not just, it's not enough to give the boys a book about how, yeah, you need to be manly. Yeah, it's it's about to be up to you. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. The older men who are still in positions of authority, they need to be strongly encouraged to speak to them with respect as you would to a father, but they need to be strongly encouraged to see the need for them to invest in the young men in their communities. Otherwise, it looks a lot like some variation on their generation having told the baby mamas, get an abortion. Don't abort our future, please. Older men, don't do that. God sees, God knows, God will provide a reckoning in due time, in due season. But then also too, if there's some question in our minds about whether these things can be reversed, if we can be delivered from the hands of our oppressors, look to stories like Gideon and know God sometimes calls men valorous who are not being particularly valorous at the moment, but then they become valorous through acting in a courageous way, in being obedient. They find that courage. They are encouraged by God himself. Don't miss that. But that's all I've got for today. All the time I have, I got to run. It is a Sunday morning. I need to get my family to church on time. And it looks like a request just came through for me to help with security this morning. So I should go and do that as well. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.